what the people said. Amen. So last week, we began a new sermon series that's going to take us from last week all the way until Advent. We're looking at our identity, who we are as God's image bearers, who you and I are as children of God. And we're calling this series, Searching for What is True About Me and About You. Now, there are a lot of things that speak into our identity. Um, Our culture and our context certainly play a part in shaping who we are. My own inner sense of who I am has certainly played a part in forming me into the person I am today. But neither our culture or our inner self are ultimately trustworthy. And I know that (laughs) might be hard to hear at first, but neither are ultimately trustworthy because they're both inconsistent. Our culture, us, we're inconsistent and we change. So we need to reach beyond those two things to a deeper source of truth about who and what we are. This is one of those topics that we truly do need to trust the expert. Thankfully, we have one. The unchanging creator of the universe knows everything there is to know about the humans that he created. And he's told us all about in scripture. So to get us started in this series for the first four weeks, we're focusing on two simple, what I believe are foundational truths from the scriptures. Now, both of these truths completely reject the idea that who we are in God's eyes, that it's in any way based on our performance or on our achievement. And both of these truths, I believe, are at the heart of what the biblical narrative says about us. And we talked about these last week. We're going to talk about these for the next couple weeks. These two truths, let's all say them together, that we are known and that we are worth dying for. I've honestly been a little like nervous coming into this series, a little uncertain, like for months. I wasn't totally sure why. Um, earlier this morning, I, I think I kind of realized um, this is actually a, not only a really important conversation to have, it's actually kind of dangerous. And, and here's what I mean by that. Imagine a church whose leaders and whose people internalize the truth that we are known and that we are worth dying for. Imagine a church whose people have rooted their identity in those two truths first. Imagine how effective that church might be. And I'm telling you, an effective church is dangerous to God's enemies. This is a very important conversation for us to have. It's very important that we internalize these two truths first before we go anywhere else. I was thinking about this, and I, uh, one of my professors, he has this really brilliant habit. Um, when he meets people, he will never ask them, what do you do? And I've seen this over and over. He'll meet a new person. He never, he'll never say the words, what do you do? Because that question by itself, it basically demands the kind of answer where we are forced to define ourselves by our work right? Or if you're retired, maybe you're defining yourselves by, I don't do anything. So I don't know. I know that's not true of y'all. Now look, our work, 
It certainly shapes us, and by work, I don't mean your job. I mean the things that we do, productive in society. Our work, it certainly shapes us. I think that God intends to use that work in the process of shaping us more than we realize. I'm actually writing a dissertation on that very idea. But God uses our work to shape and mold who we are. We are not our work. I am not what I do. I am not, first and foremost, a pastor. I am a child of God who is known, loved, and worth dying for. And the way God has called me to respond to that truth is by being a pastor. So instead of asking people, what do you do? He asks them, and he's Australian, so he just has a much cooler way of asking it. But he asks them, he says, how do you spend your day? Now, that is a brilliant question. And the question is actually a gift because it's surprising enough that most people, they're forced to just pause and think for a second about how they want to answer. How do I want to define myself? But it also forces us to reflect, I don't know, how do I spend my days? (laughs) It's the first question he asked me again this summer when we met in London. He said, Chad, how have you been spending your days? Not always working on my dissertation, (laughs) unfortunately. What if we internalized the truths that we are known? Scripture goes on, that means that we are accepted, that we are loved. What if we internalized the truth that for some reason God believes that we are worth dying for? How How might that impact the way that we spend our days? How we interact with each other? How might that shape our sense of identity? So we spent most of last week looking at the first six verses of Psalm 139. Those six verses make it really clear that we are known by God and that we are known by God, not just because God knows everything, but because he's done the work to know us. It says that he has searched us, he's examined us. The truth is the scriptures from beginning to end describe a God who is in hot pursuit of his people. Scriptures do not describe a God that's distant and impersonal. This God is chasing after us. He's seeking us out because he's madly in love with us. And he's madly in love with us, not because of anything that we've done or achieved, not because we deserve his love or because we're owed anything. He loves us simply because God is love and God has chosen to love us. So the scriptures tell us the truth that we are known, that we are loved, and we can know those things are true because scripture also says that we are worth dying for. I ended last week with a rather long quote from Tim Keller's book, Jesus the King. Um, This book is basically just a reflection on the gospel of Mark, but in this section on love, he says this, and this is part of what I shared last week. He says, what we need is someone to love us who doesn't need us. What we need is someone who loves us radically, unconditionally, vulnerably. Someone who loves us just for our sake. And if we received that kind of love, it would so assure us of our value. It would so assure us of who we are. It would so fill us up that maybe we could start to give love like that too. 
In this book, he argues that we need to be loved radically, unconditionally, and vulnerably, just like we need air to breathe and water to drink. I think there's a reason that when adults have children, there is this sense right away from the very beginning that that's like the one time in our life, the moment we become parents, that we really do love radically, unconditionally, and vulnerably. But then those kids grow up and things change, right? (laughs) But for a moment, we get a glimpse of it, but we can't do it forever because it's too heavy a burden to bear. Only Jesus can fully bear it. Only Jesus can give that complete and perfect love. So let me share, this is gonna be another rather long quote from his book, but it helps to complete the thought because the story doesn't just end with Christ's love for me. Um, He shares a note from a young woman in his congregation. Um, She wrote this, she said, a major issue in my life has been people pleasing. I needed approval to be liked, admired, accepted. Can anyone say amen? (laughs) Anybody relate, right? So then she says, but for the first time, I was able to see how important it was that I identified with Christ because his love has enabled me to love my friends and family for who they are and not seek more from them because I can find whatever is lacking in Christ. Come on. His love has enabled me to love my friends and family for who they are and not seek more from them because I can find whatever is lacking in Christ. It has been a huge relief to finally feel free enough to love people and know that in Christ, I am safe and protected. Like, do you see how the security of Jesus's love enables her to need less so that she can love more? And then Keller goes on to say this. He says, why did God create us and later redeem us at the greatest cost to himself, even though he doesn't need us? He did it because he loves us. And his love is perfect love. It's radically vulnerable love. And when you begin to get it, when you begin to experience it, then the incomplete nature of our love starts to wash away. And you get the patience and security to reach out and start giving a more complete love to other people. Do you see why this matters? Like, do you see how internalizing Christ's love for us, internalizing the truth of who we are from his perspective, do you see how it can impact the way that we spend our days? The way that we interact with one another? Can you see how it shapes our understanding of who we are? And can you just imagine how effectively dangerous a church would be if its leaders and its people had these two truths as the core of their identity? I want to spend a little time, uh, just a minute, in the next six verses of Psalm 139. And then I want to share uh, two passages from the Gospels because I want to show you how Jesus brings this psalm to completion. Uh, We believe Jesus is not just the fulfillment of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of the whole whole thing, right? He's the fulfillment of the prophets, the law, and even the Psalms. He is the God who knows us in the flesh. So Psalm 139, verse 7, I read it earlier, but listen to it again. David writes, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. 
If I ride on the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. I mentioned last week that we often hide, that we put on false selves so that we can be accepted and also so that we're not fully seen, right? Psalm 139 is telling us that we are not only accepted, but that by God, we cannot not be seen. Like from God's perspective, there's nowhere for us to go. There is no false self that I can put on that's gonna protect me or shield me from God. And to make that point, this Psalm makes some radical claims, y'all. Some things that theologians disagree with. (laughs) Like that not only in heaven, but even in the grave, God is there. That's what the Psalm says. Now here's the deal, we can get lost in theological debates about this, or we can do what the psalm is inviting us to do. We can bask in the glory that even death itself can't separate us from God. Paul will say that later in Romans. Death couldn't separate Jesus from his Father in heaven, and through Jesus, death cannot separate or hide me from my Father in heaven either. Now there are many stories in the Gospels where this psalm plays itself out. I just want to show you two. These stories where Jesus is the God who sees us in the flesh. So the first one comes from John chapter 4. This will be familiar to some of you. John 4 and verse 5, it says, Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of the ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. Now it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now the story continues. They have a really long discussion about water, about mountains, about fathers. Jesus explains to her that he is the living water, that he's the way to life eternal, but she still doesn't totally get it. She says this in verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. (laughs) So he told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. So what you have just said is quite true. Man, that conversation took a turn, (laughs) right? Like, And I mean, it reads kind of awkwardly. I think um, if I said that, I think even maybe just the way that I read it, like it comes off kind of judgmental. But y'all, this is Jesus. And for some reason, when Jesus tells the truth for those who are called to him, for those who hear him, it convicts, but it convicts in a way that heals, in a way that makes people whole again. The woman didn't run away. She kept up with the conversation. She says this in verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Do you hear the connection she's making? He will know everything. He'll explain everything to us. You seem to know some things. He declares, I, the one speaking with you, I am he. And then the text says, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who's told me everything I ever did. 
could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. And many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did because he knows me. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. He stayed for two days and because of his words, many more became believers. Okay, there's a lot of interesting things in this story. I just wanna show you one thing. It's a really small detail, verse six, and it's telling us a lot more than we realize. Verse six says, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. What time was it? Do you remember? It was about noon. Now, do you know why that woman was also there at about noon? Yeah, some of you know, it's because nobody else would have been there. You see, at that time, the women would go to get the water from the well the very first thing in the morning. They need it for the day. The fact that she waited until noon to go to that well, what does that mean? She's hiding. She's hiding. She doesn't want to be seen. And Jesus tells us why. Because she had five husbands and she wasn't married to the guy that she's currently with. And in that time and in that place, that would draw the kind of attention, it would draw the stares, it would draw the kind of shame that nobody wants to deal with. This woman comes to Jesus hiding from others, but she couldn't hide from him. She didn't wanna be fully known by others. She was ashamed about what they already knew about her, what they saw when they looked at her. But she comes to Jesus and she is seen. She's already fully known by him. And in this moment, being seen by him, realizing that she was already fully known by him, it didn't bring shame. It brought salvation. That's what Jesus does. And the amazing thing is what she does next. What is her very first reaction? It's the same thing Philip did when he found Jesus. Go get someone else. Go tell someone. Her first reaction was to go home to the place where everybody knows who she is, to the people she was hiding from, her first reaction is to go to them and tell everyone, no longer hiding, no longer living in shame. She told the entire town and many of them came to faith because of her testimony. What a transformation. How effective, how dangerous. That's what internalizing the love of Christ can do to us because his love is perfect love, radically vulnerable love. And when you begin to get it, when you begin to experience it, the incomplete nature of our love starts to wash away and you've got the patience and security to reach out and start giving a more complete love to other people. There's one more story from much later in the gospels and this one is a bit tragic, but as always, Jesus makes it beautiful. Um, this is the night that Jesus is betrayed and arrested in the garden. It's the night before his crucifixion. He had washed his disciples' feet. He had shared a meal with them. He explained that this meal would go on to be a testimony of everything he was about to do. And then after the meal, Mark's gospel tells us that he and the disciples went out to the Mount of Olives. And Mark writes this, Jesus told them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter declares, even if all these fools fall away, my translation, <laughs> even if all fall away, 
I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insists emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Now, of course, we know what happens next, right? And if you don't know, I'm pretty sure you can see where this is going. Before a rooster crowed twice, Peter had denied Jesus three times. Each time within the crowd, but hiding himself from the crowd, hoping that he could watch what was happening to Jesus without being noticed as one of his followers. The other disciples abandoned him too. It was after that rooster crowed the second time, then Peter remembered the word Jesus spoke to him and he broke down and wept. Now, a couple important things to consider about this story. Internally, what did Peter believe to be true about himself? Think about it for a minute. When Peter emphatically refuted Jesus, do you think Peter was making that up or do you think he really believed it? Yeah. Internally, what did he believe about himself? Like he believed that regardless of what the others would do, he would never fall away. He would never deny Jesus because he loved him. He believed that he was brave enough, that he was courageous enough, that he would even follow Jesus to the grave. It's like Peter is reading Psalm 139 backwards. He's like, Jesus, where can you go to get away from me? Even if you go to the grave, I will be there. But Jesus knew Peter. He saw Peter for who he really was. And Jesus knew what Peter would actually do. The question is, why was Peter so confident? So sure that Jesus was wrong, that he would fight or die, that he would never deny Jesus. Well, here's the truth that all of the gospels, the rest of the New Testament, even church history, there's a truth that they all confirm that Peter truly loved Jesus. I mean, Peter truly loved him. John calls himself the beloved disciple, the one who was loved, and we'll talk about that later. Peter truly loved Jesus, maybe more than the others. But his confidence in himself, his identity, it was based on his love for Jesus and not on Jesus' love for him. And y'all listen, even when we love well, even when we have the best of intentions, our love has limitations. Peter followed Jesus well, he trusted Jesus, he truly loved Jesus. He stood right there by his side until he didn't. Peter's confidence in himself and his sense of identity was based on his love for Jesus, not on Jesus' love for him. The problem is that Peter's love for Jesus couldn't withstand the cross. Jesus' love for Peter could. But that's not the end of Peter's story. Mark's gospel leaves this part out, and many people believe that Mark was written by a disciple of Peter, that Mark's gospel is really the gospel as Peter retold it. Mark's gospel leaves this next part out, but it's really sweet. John's gospel puts it in. This is in John chapter 21. 
Jesus appears, the resurrected Christ at this point, appears to his disciples on the beach. They're out fishing, but he's on the shore already cooking his own fish. He breaks bread and shares it with them again. He does the same with his fish, and then he and Peter have a conversation. It says this in John 21, verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Three denials before the rooster crowed twice. Three opportunities for Peter to undo those denials and reaffirm his love for Jesus. But this time, his love for Jesus is rooted in the sacrifice. It's rooted in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now his love for Jesus is a response to Jesus' love for him. And we actually know this because the way the language is written, the Greek, I won't get deep into it. I've shared it with some of you. The word used for love by Jesus is different than the word used by love for Peter. Jesus says to Peter, I'm loving you in a deeper way than you're even capable of loving me. Can you receive it now? Jesus already sees, he already knows the man that Peter is gonna become. He knows that this is the man when he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he's gonna preach that famous sermon in Acts chapter two. This is gonna be the man who's gonna be an important part of forming and shaping Jesus's church. The good shepherd will soon leave to be with his father in heaven and he leaves behind this denier who he is now entrusted and empowered in many ways to take his place as the shepherd. I told you, it's a tragic story that Jesus makes beautiful. <laughs> and I could go on and do this all day. Story after story about the ways that Jesus knows his sheep. Now look, these are of course their stories, this woman at the well and Peter, but they reveal deep truths about us. These stories are used as a mirror. Jesus is using them to reveal truths about us, but not to shame us, or to send us back into hiding, he does it to save us and to continue to transform us into the people that we were created to be. So if you internalize these stories, for some, like the woman at the well, we're hiding. Maybe we're hiding because we're afraid of rejection. Maybe we're afraid of what people might find out about us. Maybe we're afraid of what people already know about us. And y'all, we can hide from people but we can't hide from God. And the good news for scared hiders is that Jesus can't not see us. That he finds us, he accepts us. He loves us so much that he accepts us just as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. For others, maybe you're not hiding. Maybe we're like all out there. Maybe we're pretty bold and confident, right? Okay, but what if my confidence is based on my love for Jesus rather than his love for me? If that's the case, at some point, I'm gonna fail. My love is gonna fail. And that's a recipe for disaster. 
There are so many people, people that I know who have lost their faith because it was not built on his love for them. It was built upon their works, their good behavior, their profession of love for him. And that's just simply backwards. That's not the gospel. That's not how it works. My relationship with Jesus cannot be built on what I'm doing for him. It cannot be built on my achievements and my accomplishments. And y'all, that's so radical because every other thing in our lives is telling us we will define you by what you achieve and what you accomplish. And isn't that exhausting? <laughs> Jesus is coming to take that burden, to make it light. Now, if your confidence and if your security is built on his great love for you, on what he has done for you, okay, well, that's not only going to change you from the inside out. It'll not only make you secure and firm in who you are, it's going to empower you to do the things that God has called you to do. It'll transform you into a vehicle for God's love and grace and mercy in the world. Because his love is perfect love radically vulnerable love and when you begin to get it when you begin to experience it the incomplete nature of our identity begins to wash away and you become the person that you were made to be a person with the patience and confidence to point others to the one who sees them who knows them already and who loves them so much that he accepts them just as he finds them but he loves them too much to leave them that way amen Imagine how effective a church would be if her leaders and her people internalized the truth that we are already known and that we are accepted and loved and that for some reason the creator of the universe believes that we're worth dying for. Imagine how effective we would be. Imagine how dangerous that would make us. I had planned on getting to John chapter 10 this week um, but, you know, we're out of time. So um, for next week, uh, homework. Every day, read John chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Can you all remember that? Everybody say it. John chapter 10, verses, verses 1 through 18. Okay, good. You got it. Email me if not. All right. John chapter 10, 1 through 18. And next week, we'll see what that passage has to say about these two truths. Amen? Let's pray. It's astounding, Father, that even as I am, just as I am, as the song says, that you know it, you know it all, you know it all. couldn't hide from you if we tried. That you accept us as we are. You call us your child. That we are worth dying for even as we are in our sin. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But you love us so much that you don't leave us there. You don't leave us broken and ashamed. You bring healing and hope and a new life that begins now. I pray that we would not only find that life, but that we would live into it each and every day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.